Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. First of all, I just want to say thanks to the kids. Uh, it's always hard to follow that because um, I'm not cute enough and uh, I don't do fun things with my hands and wave and all that stuff. So uh, just we're going to have to change, uh, change pace a little bit. But thanks for, uh, for singing for us. And I won't take personal that they and their parents all left. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm not sure if you caught. Did anyone catch the nostalgic moment in that uh, bumper video? Anybody catch that? Yeah, okay, we got a few uh, hands clapped. For those who weren't familiar with the song in that bumper video, that is Good King Wenceslas by Mannheim Steamroller, or better known around these parts as the intro song for The Living Christmas Tree, an annual Christmas production that took place each year at Grant for 26 years between 1984 and 2009. And so if you are one of those who uh, had a flashback just now while that song played, thank you for your commitment to Grant Memorial for all these years. You've been here a long time. And for those of you who have never heard that song before, uh, thank you for joining us at Grant and becoming a part of our church family in the days since 2009, helping shape our church into the place that God desires us to be in 2023 and beyond. We're so glad that you are here. Hello, Grant Memorial. Uh, my name is Cam. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we're hitting pause on our study in Genesis to celebrate the Advent season leading up to Christmas with our full attention on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the circumstances surrounding the most wonderful time of all years. And the way we're going to unpack this story of stories, speaking of old songs, is to study the songs of Christmas. Now, just to clarify, by songs of Christmas, I don't mean that we will be unpacking lyrics to our favorite carols like Joy to the World and Silent Night. No, what we'll be doing over the next four weeks is engaging with four songs as recorded in the Gospel of Luke that were sung by the characters in the Christmas narrative as they responded to what God was doing in the world. You see, beyond simply telling the story of what happened that very first Christmas, the Gospel of Luke invites us to see the emotional responses of God's people as it's revealed to them both what he is doing and that he's chosen to involve them. So over the next few weeks, we will hear and study lyrics sung or declared by Mary, the mother of Jesus, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, the heavenly choir of angels, and a faithful believer named Simeon, as they all see with their very own eyes what God is up to. 
my hope is that by the time we are finished, by the time Christmas is here, that we will understand the context of God's incarnation, the content of these songs, as well as their implications for us today, as we too are invited to respond to the good news that God came into this world. And this morning's song is the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So would you open your copy of the scriptures along with me to Luke chapter 1 as we take a look at the encounter between Mary and the angel Gabriel and Mary's musical response to what she hears. Reading in Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. We're going to skip down to verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that as we encounter it, as we uh, ponder the words of this ancient song, that we would be changed as a result of hearing from you. Amen. Friends, what we just heard at the end of our passage this morning is the very first Christmas song ever sung. Right? Nearly two millennia before Silent Night was ever performed in Austria or before Santa Claus and all the other songs of his namesake were penned, 
Even centuries before the church had a universal creed around what the birth of Christ meant, words of praise poured out of a teenage peasant in regards to the incarnation of Jesus. Now, before we get to the content of Mary's song itself, we need to ask, what exactly is going on here in the text that we just read? Right? What is it that leads Mary to burst out in song? Well, let's take a look, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we'll hear a little bit more about next week, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, to say that this encounter was unexpected would be probably the world's greatest understatement. And not simply because no one ever really expects an angel to show up, but because of the circumstances around this particular encounter. Right? And it starts with, with the when of this meeting between Mary and the angel. You see, it is really important to understand the context here, the plight of God's people in first century Judea at this time. The Old Testament scholar Daniel Darling unpacks the context of these opening lines of Luke's gospel. He says, the people of God were weary and downtrodden. Once a mighty nation ruled by David and thriving under King Solomon, Israel had been conquered and never would they return to their former glory. In roughly 331 BC, Alexander the Great conquered all these lands and established Greek culture and language. Then the Romans conquered the Greeks, the, the Greeks and while keeping Greek culture, also instituted their own pagan practices and installed a ruthless and corrupt governor, Herod, who was deeply distrusted by the people. All this while God remained silent, speaking through no prophet for 400 years. You see, God's people knew the prophetic promises of the Old Testament, that God would restore David's kingdom through a messianic king who would rescue them and lead them into peace and prosperity, but it just seemed like a distant fantasy in first century Rome. You see, over the past few hundred years before this, they had seen many false messiahs come and go. They had even, even lived through a revolt against Rome led by a family named the Maccabees that provided a glimmer of hope, but it too was eventually squashed by the Romans who in turn just ruled more ruthlessly, oppressing and exploiting the people. Sure, the Jews knew the promises of God, but they had, for all intents and purposes, lost hope that they would ever see it come to fruition. And so when we think about the Christmas story and the climate within which we read these words in Luke, we cannot forget the weight of oppression carried by God's people. They felt abused, harassed, even forgotten, at best cynical of God's promise of salvation and at worst having given up on it completely. To those living in this day, it was the unlikeliest of times the least ideal of conditions for God to bring about the political shift in which they had exhausted all their hope. Beyond the time frame, 
this encounter happens also in the unlikeliest of places. If you are ever driving down Provincial Highway number three, heading toward Carmen, Morden, or Winkler, there's a pretty well-known game that's a lot of fun to play. You see, along that stretch of highway, there is a town called Brunkild. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Brunkild takes about 45 seconds to get through. Now, the game in Brunkild is to try and guess how many living human beings you will see outside as you pass through the town. And so as you come up on the Welcome to Brunkild sign, each person in the car chooses a number, and then by looking keenly up the streets into driveways and backyards, you try to find as many real, live Brunkildians as you can. Now, here's the thing about the Brunkild game. And if you've played it, you know. The person who chooses zero almost always wins. <laughs> now, you might get lucky choosing one with someone filling up their gas tank at the service station or, or a worker uh, at the grain elevator, elevator getting out of his truck. But in my experience, seldom is a human seen as one drives through the town of Brunkild. Now, why am I telling you this? Aside from introducing your family to 45 seconds of fun on your next southern Manitoba road trip. Well, it's because when we envision an angel descending on the town of Nazareth, as we read in verse 26, to announce the coming of God himself into the world, we need to be thinking about a place like Brunkild, a town that most people weren't even aware of its existence, and if they are, it's as a novelty, not due to anything significant. Nazareth is the insignificant town that people passed by on their way to their destination. The town they jokingly said to themselves, can you imagine living here? In fact, years later, when a would-be disciple hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he poses the question, can anything good come from there? Doubting that Jesus is in fact worth following if he's from Nazareth. Friends, Nazareth was a nowhere. Nazareth wasn't on the map. It wasn't on most people's radars. That is, aside from God's. And it's in this nowhere that God revealed his plan to save everywhere through the unlikeliest of people. You see, it's in this insignificant town that God would choose an insignificant teenager to partner with in bringing salvation to all nations. Now, before you conclude that I've crossed a line insulting Jesus' very own mother by calling her insignificant, notice that Mary herself thought the very same thing, which is why when she breaks into song a little later on, she acknowledges her own inconsequentiality. Verse 48 he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. We'll unpack that a little bit later. Theologian R. Kent Hughes comments about the expected future for Mary if God hadn't miraculously intervened with a different plan. He says, from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, 
never travel further than a few miles from home and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet it is to Mary that the angel declares in verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Can you imagine that moment? Being told by a being so terrifying that he always leads with the line, do not be afraid, that God himself had chosen you to bring his son into the world so that he could establish and rule over the earth with an everlasting kingdom. Friends, this is not simply a once in a lifetime conversation. This is a once in anyone's lifetime conversation. And the one human in history who had it was the unlikeliest of all. You see, as unlikely as the time frame of God's announcement was, at the height of the Roman Empire, as unlikely as the place where the angel was sent to the middle of nowhere, the most improbable aspect of God's action here is the whom God chose to invite into his unfolding plan. Church, it doesn't make sense that the king of all kings would be birthed by a peasant and not by a queen. It just doesn't make sense that the great high priest wouldn't come from the priestly line of Levites. And even more than that, even if those other exceptions could be made, it really doesn't make sense that a baby of any sort could be born to a virgin. Which is why Mary responds to this news in verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? Right? And while Mary was not uh, very well educated, she knew the basics of biology. That she needed to be with a man before she could conceive a child. It was not only unlikely that God would choose her to bear his son, but from an earthly perspective, it was impossible. But the angel, unfazed by Mary's question, affirms her with a sentiment similar to Jesus' own words in Matthew 19, 26. With God, all things are possible. Saying in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In short, church, the angel says, God is the one who will make it happen doesn't have to make sense to you. God is the one who will make it happen. To which Mary replies simply, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary, the teenage virgin, agrees with the angel that God can do anything. And if he wants to bring about his purposes through her, she will submit, obey, and believe as unlikely as it seems. And it's in this context, church, that Mary sings the very first Christmas 
song. Now, this morning, rather than walking through her song line by line, I, I want to acknowledge and unpack three themes that are central to Mary's response to God. But before we do that, here are just a couple general comments about Mary that we learn from the song she sings in response to God. And the first thing that we recognize about Mary through these lyrics is that Mary knew God's word. Mary knew God's word. Mary, as most Jewish girls in her day, would have memorized scripture growing up. And we see this evident in the lyrics of this song. You see, in just 10 verses, right, her song is 10 verses long. In just 10 verses, Mary references texts from Genesis, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, and 1 Samuel. She references all of those in 10 lines. This song is oozing with scripture as Mary applies Old Testament theological truths to her current situation. In fact, pastor and theologian Daryl Johnson suggests that through this song, the Virgin Mary becomes the first Christian theologian. Mary is the first human being to reflect theologically and biblically on the meaning of the birth of Jesus. Mary is the first person to try to put into words what the miracle and mystery of the incarnation means for the world. And she wouldn't be able to do this without a knowledge of God's inspired word as well as the Holy Spirit's inspiration and insight. And the most obvious, out of all of those references, the most obvious scriptural connection is one that she makes between her own situation and that of Hannah's miraculous conception in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Almost repeating verbatim Hannah's own prayer's opening line. This is what Hannah says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord is my horn. The Lord, my horn, is lifted high. And Mary herself says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, as Mary burst into song, it is scripture that pours out. Next, we see that. Beyond simple memorization, Mary was deeply familiar with the promises in Scripture as well. Right? Mary knew God's promises. Bible professor and author Julia B. Higgins writes, she says, well, Mary does not mention Genesis 3.15 specifically. It's likely that she would have been thinking of the promise given to Eve that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The women of Israel had been looking for this promised offspring since the days of the garden. And because this hope was being realized, Mary proclaims, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why does Mary say all generations will call me blessed? Because she knows that this baby that she has just been promised is the offspring that the world has been promised that this child would bring an end to all sin and pain and sorrow and death as was prophesied in the garden by God himself. And in this moment, Mary realizes that she is the one whom God is using to save the world for good. 
in Genesis 3 when the serpent was read his fate. God was referring to this moment. And Mary was the carrier of that great promise. And so it's no wonder, is it, that Mary bursts into song as she pieces all of these things together. Right, as her, her understanding of the scriptures and of the promises of God leads her to fully understand how significant the angel's words were to her in this moment. So what is it that Mary actually sings? Right, what is it that she declares as she realizes that God is initiating his plan of salvation and that plan involves her? Well, I I know that there are dozens of things we could uncover in this song. We could unpack each Old Testament reference she makes. We could uh, do a word study on each line. But for this morning, as I said earlier, I, I simply want us to see three main things in the lyrical content that we need to understand in order to appreciate what Mary expresses through this song. And the first thing Mary does through this song is that she elevates God. Mary elevates God. Listen to the first line. Verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord. Or as some others have rightfully translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. The very first thing Mary does is acknowledges that it is God who is to be glorified. It is God who is to be magnified. It is God who is to be made much of, to be increased, and to be praised. And in a world where we are tempted to emphasize ourselves, to elevate our own experiences or our own role in each and every story, Mary ensures that God is the main character in this moment. He is to receive all glory and honor and praise. And and the entire rest of the song follows this same focus. For those of you who still have your Bibles open in front of you, take a quick look at the pronouns on the page. He has been mindful of his servant. He has done great things. Holy is his name. His mercy extends. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers. He has filled the hungry. He has helped Israel just as he promised. He is the one who is mighty. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who is merciful. Friends, it is clear that the main character in this song, this song of praise, is appropriately and unmistakably about God. Mary has just been told that she will be the mother of the Messiah, and she does not for one second elevate herself, reflecting on her own faithfulness, her own righteousness, patting herself on the back for her biblical knowledge or for keeping the Lord's statutes. No. God is the one who is to be honored and praised. He is the hero. And while Mary will serve as his instrument, she knows that it is only by his hand that these promises will come to pass. She starts by elevating God. Next, in contrast to elevating God through this song, Mary humbles herself. Mary humbles herself. 
As we mentioned earlier, immediately after declaring that God is to be glorified, she acknowledges her own lowliness, verse 48 again. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And in the same breath that she emphasizes God's greatness, she declares her own weakness. In fact, the word that she uses that's translated here as servant is literally slave or handmaiden. Mary is praising God for noticing the lowly station of a slave in comparison. Mary here emphasizes the distance between her and God. He is the highest and she is the lowest, and yet he has seen her and graciously called her out of her lowly station. And so she praises him. Then she continues this train of thought in verse 48 and 49, pointing out that all generations will call her blessed. Now that might sound like she's patting herself on the back a little bit, but no, she continues. She says why this will happen. Mary says it is solely because of him. Verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. All generations will call me blessed, not because of what I have done, but all generations will call me blessed because of what God has done for me. Again, Mary is not chosen because of who she is or what she has done, her big long list of righteous check marks. She's chosen solely by the grace of God who has done it all. Church, this is a, a young woman who gets it. She doesn't understand God's work as a 50-50 partnership between her and God or a 75-25 partnership, even a 99%, 1% partnership. God's work in her life is 100% because of him and she is blessed to simply be seen and be chosen. Well, finally... After Mary establishes the magnitude of God in contrast with the lowliness of herself, she spends the rest of the song proclaiming God's kingdom. She proclaims God's kingdom. She speaks of the meaning of Jesus coming to earth. This is no longer a song for her. It is a song for the world. And in what reads like a revolutionary anthem, Mary proceeds to sing of a great reversal that will be established in the upside-down kingdom of God. You see, Mary is very familiar with the ways of the world. There are the rich, powerful, the proud, and there are the humble, the hungry, the lowly of which she is the latter. But what Mary sees in God choosing her, one of the humble as opposed to the extravagant, is that God's kingdom operates differently than the world does. New Testament scholar George Caird writes, says, Mary sings of her own exaltation from lowliness to greatness as typical of the new order which is, which is to open out for the whole people of God through the coming of her son. 
Mary realizes that when her son is born into our world, a great reversal begins and a great revolution starts. With the coming of Jesus, Mary declares that this new order is being established. God is flipping everything on its head. And then in verse 50 to 55 of this song, she unpacks this new way. In short, she proclaims that the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, the forgotten will be noticed, while the notable will be humbled. In this new kingdom of God, the humble will be exalted, while the powerful will be shamed. The proud and self-sufficient will be banished while those who need and fear God will receive mercy and will be filled. Mary sings a revolutionary song declaring that the coming of Jesus will turn human attitudes and orders of society upside down. It will cause ideological reversals and shift every paradigm. This coming baby will not simply adjust a few things. No, this child will change absolutely everything. And the amazing thing about this is that when her child grows up, this is the very message that he declares as well. The words of Mary's song are prophetic of what we see in her son. Think about Matthew 5, for example, where Jesus changes the definition of what blessed means teaching that the ones who will inherit God's kingdom are the poor, the meek, the mourners, the hungry, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted, not the wealthy, the powerful, the uber-religious, or the comfortable. Friends, this is the radical message of Jesus, that a new kingdom is coming, an eternal kingdom that will take over from this temporal one, and in it, everything will be different. The first will be last, and the last will be first. God will reign with mercy and justice forever. And here, 30 years before Jesus' ministry even begins, his mother already gets the message that Jesus is coming to preach. Because she is the first one to experience this great shift going from a servant girl to the mother of a king. So friends, that is what Mary sings about. That is how Mary responds to the news that God was coming to earth and that she was going to play a role in that plan. She elevates God. She humbles herself. And she proclaims the kingdom of God that will come with her promised son. Which leaves us, as we wrap up, to ask ourselves, will we respond the same way? Because here's the thing. We too, like Mary, have been invited to participate with God in what he is doing in the world. As theologian John Stott points out, he says, Mary's experience, which is in one way absolutely unique, 
in another way is typical of the experience of every believer. Daryl Johnson agrees. Growing and developing and forming in the womb of Mary is the body of the incarnate God, Emmanuel, God with us. That is a never-to-be-repeated event. But the life, the unique, ungenerated, eternal life dwelling in the body growing in Mary's womb now dwells in anyone who belongs to Mary's son. The living God, the God of Mary, wants to put within each of our broken lives the very life of his son. Church, I know that this is a little mysterious, but if you have come to know Christ and have received his death and resurrection as payment for your sin and invitation into freedom with him, the Bible tells us that God's spirit now dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Romans 8.9, however, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Church, did you hear that? God has placed himself within each of us as well. And we can, in a way, insert ourselves into this text that we've just read You see, we, like Mary, have found favor with God. Not because of anything we've done. We, like Mary, are the unlikely ones whom God has chosen based strictly upon his grace and mercy. And we, like Mary, have the opportunity to say yes, to be used by him, serving as his instruments through which he can bring about his purposes in the world as his spirit works in and through us, bringing his upside-down kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, helping to be agents of peace and forgiveness, justice and impartiality, grace and love, joy and hope in a world that so severely lacks it as God pours his grace through us to all who need it. Friends, the incarnational work of God is ongoing in the hearts and lives of those who carry the spirit of God within them and who let that spirit flow into the world that God is sovereign over. Simply, church, we are invited to participate in the ongoing Christmas story. And the only question, the only variable, is how we will respond. Will we decline involvement? Will we ignore the invitation? Will we quench the spirit? Will we live for ourselves? Will we make ourselves the main character in our stories? Or will we, like Mary, elevate God, humble ourselves and choose to proclaim the kingdom of God as we too emphatically declare, I am the Lord's servant. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, remind us that we are carriers of God if we know you. God, we thank you for that reality. We thank you, God, that you didn't create us, throw us down here and say good luck. 
but that you have given us your spirit to work within us, to work through us. Help us, God, in this season, as we enter into this Christmas season, not to be so distracted by the thousand things calling us and pulling us in different directions. Help us this season to elevate you, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us this season to humble ourselves, realizing just what it means to be saved by the incarnate God. And help us to be people who proclaim your kingdom, who bless our neighbors, who tell our coworkers and our friends and our family the good news of a kingdom that changes absolutely everything. Amen. Now, each week in this series, I'm only going to do this uh, once, but each week in this uh, series, at the conclusion of the message, we're going to rest in the words and themes of these very songs that we're studying, as new arrangements are sung to us by others within our church family. And as that happens, the Advent candle for the week will be lit. Now, there are words uh, going to be on the screen, and they will be familiar because we've just read them. But this is an opportunity for us all to sit under the ministry of songs initially penned over 2,000 years ago that we might be encouraged, challenged, and inspired and ministered to by the words of Scripture, the songs of Christmas. So this week, the song of Mary. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit exalts in God my Savior, for he has looked with mercy on my loneliness, and my name will be forever exalted. For the mighty God has done great things for me, and his mercy will reach from age to age.
Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.